Well, turn, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, page 867 in a church Bible. Again, welcome to you if you've uh, just uh, come for this Sunday. We've been working through the book of Ezekiel over these uh, last uh, weeks since uh, the new year turned, and uh, we're at chapter 36 now, verses 16 to 38, the reading that uh, Paul read for us just a bit earlier, page 867. I'm very tempted to start with the old familiar words of, you know, the old joke, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news? I've spent uh, some time this afternoon looking up good news, bad news jokes, uh, but uh, even though I had a few written down, I've chopped them all. Uh, because, you see, Ezekiel is a book of good, good news and bad news, but actually it's the other way around. It's bad news and good news, but it's nothing to joke about. Ezekiel was no joker. He was a prophet of God, a watchman. And you'll remember if you've been here over these last weeks that for the first 32 chapters of this book, for five years of his life, Ezekiel declared the bad news that the Israelites were under the judgment of God. And that was nothing to joke about. The second half of the book is good news. And after the first 32 chapters, it's astonishing actually that there is a second half of the book. That there is any good news at all. Israel had been so wicked... Judgment really should have been God's final word. Look, the same could have been said of this evening. It is terrific. It's been terrific, hasn't it, seeing Nathan and Charlotte and Yang baptised. It's been a great night. But it is remarkable that we can have a baptism at all. It is astonishing that we can be speaking about God forgiving people. Because none of us deserve any of it. Uh, One of the big news uh, issues this week has been the conviction of of two murderers, uh, Steve Wright for the the killing of five prostitutes in Ipswich and and Mark Dixie for the uh, terrible murder of Sally-Ann Bowman. And those two cases have raised the question about whether every British citizen should be on the DNA database to bring more uh, cases to a swifter conclusion. Uh, Because we want justice done, don't we? In an interview on this issue on Breakfast News this week, the person interviewed began by saying, I congratulate Suffolk Police Force and the Met for the results they've had in these cases. See, justice has been done and we are pleased. We congratulate the police when they bring criminals to justice. We want to find ways of bringing more criminals to justice. Let's get everybody on the DNA database. How outraged we would be if these men had their sentences cut. Now, in the same way, in the book of Ezekiel, we have seen Israel rightly and justly coming under the judgment of God. And yet, amazingly, God's judgment is not God's final word. That's why we've had these baptisms this evening. Nathan, Charlotte and Yang, along with the rest of us here, deserve only one thing, to fall under the judgment of Almighty God, because we have rebelled against Almighty God. But that's not the end of the story. See, as we turn this evening to Ezekiel chapter 36, we discover why that isn't the end of the story. We see here why it is that God has more to say than judgment. Why judgment is not God's final word. Now, have a look then at Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. And if you're taking notes, then this is your first heading, Restoring the Honour of God's Name verses 16 to 23, restoring the honour of God's name. Look at verse 16. It is shocking language. 
Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. It is shocking language, isn't it? Imagine saying to someone, when I look at you, I think of a used tampon. No, it is disgusting. My mum wouldn't let me speak to someone like this, but here is God saying it at the end of verse 17. It is appalling language. And frankly, we are meant to be appalled by it because God is appalled by sin and that is why he speaks this way. You see, you meet some people, don't you, through life and their mouths are full of obscenities and crude language, but the Lord is not like that. Listen to the way the Lord reveals himself way back in Exodus. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see the point? God is patient. He is kind. God is compassionate and loving. And that is what makes these words even more shocking. Oh, they would be shocking from the mouth of anyone, but from the mouth of the Lord. And so for the Lord to speak like this tells us the Israelites must have been very bad. Verse 17, their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. The picture here is of something that you instinctively flush away, something that you can't have in your presence. That's how the Israelites were to God. Unclean, that's the word there in verse 17. Look again, it's what the waters of baptism declare. We are dirty, filthy, we are disgusting before our God. We should be flushed away down the sewer... We need to be thoroughly washed. We are unclean. Now you see, this is such strong language. You have to ask yourself, what is it that Israel had done to make them so disgusting in the Lord's sight? Why is the Lord so angry with these people? Well, look at verse 18. I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. Murder and idolatry. That's why the Lord is so disgusted by these people. That's why the Israelites were under the judgment of God because they committed murder and idolatry. And I want you to see tonight that that is not two things, but just one. You see, it was their idolatry, their their going after other gods that led them to commit murder. Look, uh, to to show you this, just go back in the book to uh, chapter 23, if you will. Page um, Uh, 853. We're going to come back to Ezekiel 36, so keep a finger in that. But so that you can see that this murder and idolatry is not two things, but one, that one flows out of the other, that they're bound up together. You'll see it here in chapter 23, verse 37. I'll read from verse 36, where it talks about these uh, two women, Ahola and Oholibar. They are standing for Samaria and Jerusalem, Israel and Judah, the people of God. Look at verse 36. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Ahalibar? Then confront them with their detestable practices for, here's the point, they've committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols 
They even sacrificed their children whom they bore to me as food for them. Do you see how wicked they've been? These people have murdered their children, giving them as sacrifice to their idols. Uh, Look, flip back further to chapter 16 and you'll see it again. Chapter 16, verse 20. Page 842. Just so you know, it's not just one verse hoiked out of context. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20. You took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. Oh, these were called copycat murders. Israel copied the nations around them and murdered their children to give them food to idols. What a barbaric practice. No wonder Israel was under God's judgment. No wonder the Lord used such strong language in chapter 36. This is appalling behaviour. Words fail me. They were killing their babies. Now I doubt anyone would argue that that deserves the judgement of God. I may be wrong, there might be someone here. I presume everybody agrees that 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 deserves the judgment of God. Then, my friends, that is why we too, as a nation, are under the judgment of God. Since 1967, when Parliament passed the Abortion Act, since then 6.7 million babies have been murdered in the womb. We are no better than the Israelites of old we too shed the blood of children. We try to make it more acceptable by calling them fetuses and arguing that they have no rights. But strip away all the political correct language and it boils down to one thing, in this nation we kill children. And we kill them as a sacrifice to our idols, for we have idols, we have gods in this land. We sacrifice our children to the god of Korea when a pregnancy will interrupt my career or hinder me climbing the career ladder, then it has to go. Because my career is my God. It's what I live for. It's where I find my significance and my purpose. Of course, some of us would never do that. But how many fathers have pursued their career to the detriment of their children, working such long hours that my children never see me and even when I am with them, my mind is elsewhere and I'm not really giving them the attention they deserve? And then there are parents who push their children so hard to get a good career that it appears that nothing else matters. Even Christian parents live as if their children's career is more important than their relationship with the Lord. So they'll sit with them to get the homework done, but they will never sit with them to read the Bible. We sacrifice our children to our 21st century Western gods. The God of independence demands the death of an unborn when an unwanted pregnancy will get in the way of all my plans, all the things I want to do. The God of tolerance will be screaming out right now saying, how dare the preacher say those things? And we serve that same God of tolerance and the God of comfort when we will not speak out against the practice of abortion because we want a peaceful life and we know it will cause trouble for us if we do. 
Make no mistake, this nation has its gods. Just as the pagan nations around Israel had theirs. We think our gods are far more sophisticated and far more legitimate, but don't be fooled. Career and independence and tolerance and freedom and materialism and hedonism are no different. They are gods which lead us to sacrifice our children. Idolatry and murder are rife and legal and acceptable in this nation. And so we've seen throughout this study of the book of Ezekiel, we are no different. We too are under the judgment of the Lord God Almighty, just as the people of Israel were. And if you think the point has been overstated, read chapter two if you can bear it. Uh, chapter twenty-two if you can bear it. When you get home, read the whole list of Israel's sin. And just see how frighteningly contemporary it is. If you don't want to read it, let me give you a summary. In chapter 22, you will discover sexual perversion, prostitution, adultery, incest, social oppression, economic exploitation, violence, the ill-treatment of the homeless, the immigrant and the poor. It all sounds very much like our world, doesn't it? And when it persists, the Lord says, enough is enough. And so he drove the Israelites out of the land. So you turn back with me to chapter 36 and verse 19. And you'll see the Lord judged Israel by scattering them throughout the nations. Verse 19. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. The exile, the the, the scattering of God's people all over the world was God's judgment on them. And we've seen, no one can argue against it, the Lord is right to judge. Indeed, his holiness demanded that he judged. The Lord can't turn a blind eye to this sort of sin, can he? Just as we wouldn't want the legal system of this land to, to turn a blind eye to the horrendous crimes that we've seen punished this week. The Lord is right to judge. But here's the key moment in the chapter. Here is the key moment. Listen to the effect that the judgment of God had on the reputation of God. Verse 19 again. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions and wherever they went among the nations they profaned my holy name for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people and yet they had to leave his land. Now, and I don't misunderstand, the people of Israel, when it says here they profaned his name, they weren't suddenly blaspheming and shouting religious obscenities wherever they went all over the world. No, do you see what's happening? As God judged Israel, and rightly so, as he sent them into exile, scattered around the nations, so the nations mocked God's name. This is the God who had called a people out to have this land, and now they're not in the land. They saw Jerusalem in ruins and and the Israelites in exile and they said, what sort of God is their God? He's not powerful. He can't rescue them from the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He is a weak God. It's not difficult to imagine what was going on. We see the same happening today with the organised church. If you've been reading the the national press or, or the church press, It's pretty obvious that the Anglican communion is in tatters. 
arguing among itself, close to falling apart. And what do people think as they look on? What do your colleagues at work say? What do your friends at uni say? If they're interested at all, what do they say about the Anglican Communion as it carries on? They, they look at the state of the church and they think it is a joke. We are a laughing stock to the world around. And you see, it is a very short step from there, from deriding the church to mocking God himself, to laugh at him, to write him off, to treat him as a joke. That's something of what was going on in Ezekiel's day. Verse 20, the Lord's name was being profaned. Do you see the issue? God rightly judged Israel. We've seen how wicked they were because they mocked him and his law, because they were so sinful. God rightly judged them. God's holiness demanded that they were judged. And yet in judging Israel, in scattering them among the nations, the nations profaned the Lord. And that is why God's word of judgment is not his final word. Look at verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they'd gone. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Now, did you hear it? I had concern for my holy name, for the sake of my holy name. I will show the holiness of my great name. Judgment is not God's final word because it dishonours his name. And so God rescues his people. That's why there's been a baptism here this evening. That is why we are not simply blown away, even though that is what we deserve. It would be perfectly just and perfectly right if God were to come in judgment upon his world and consign every human being to eternity in hell, every one of us, God will be perfectly just. But the Lord has already said that he's not going to do that, that he's going to make a people for himself. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, says Jesus. And so if there is no church, if there is no people of God, then it would look as if the Lord were not able to keep his promises. It would look as if he were weak, as if he were a God who lies, and so his name would be profaned. Do you see, the salvation of men and women is not primarily about us. It is about God. Even at this service, where it has been fantastic to see these three baptised, it has primarily been about him. He is centre stage. Oh, we think so differently, don't we? We think Jesus died for us because, well, what do you think? Because there's something good in us? Because we're special? Because God looked at us and even though he saw we were sinful, he he saw some potential in us, so he chose us rather than someone else. We're so full of ourselves. We think salvation's all about us. That's the problem. 
We think everything's all about us. That's what the world tells us. If you're ever under a counsellor, I can almost guarantee you that you will be told that you are a good person. That is if the counsellor is using secular models of counselling. See, that is the premise from which all secular counselling begins. You are inherently good and bad people have done things to you. And so go and listen to Whitney Houston singing The Greatest Love of All is Learning to Love Yourself because you're a lovely person. Love yourself. That's what the world tells us. And because that's the message of the world, we believe that Jesus died for us because we are lovable. See what the book of Ezekiel tells us? We are thoroughly sinful. See what verse 22 says? It is not for your sake that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. Archbishop William Temple got it right when he said this, the only contribution we make to our salvation is the sin from which we need to be saved. That's right, isn't it? God doesn't save us because we are good or nice or have potential. He saves us for the honour of his holy name. And that is why God gathers a people to himself and then makes us holy. And that is why it is so crucial that we, the people of God, are holy. The first point, restoring the honour of God's name. The second is much briefer, transforming the heart of God's people, verses 24 to 32. Transforming the heart of God's people. See, note how the next four verses, 24 to 27, note how the next four verses begin with the words, I will. Here is what God does. And he does it to demonstrate how great he is. Look at verse 24. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And the key here is I will gather you. The Lord says, I will bring you to myself. Do you hear the word of promise? And can you hear the fulfilment? Can you hear the one who does the gathering? Come to me, says Jesus. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from, uh, from all your idols. It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? With clean, pure water, God will wash dirty people of their guilt and their impurities. That's what this baptism pointed towards. No, it's not the water that does that, but the water points towards the God who does that. The God who sent his own Son and in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ where we can be cleansed. Here then is the word of promise, the promise of cleansing and washing. Can you hear the fulfilment? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, hear the promise again. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. They get better and better, don't they? God performs heart surgery, a heart transplant. The heart that has been stubborn, rebellious and obstinate against God, God will replace with a, a heart of flesh. He takes hard-hearted people and gives them a soft heart. That's what the Lord does when he takes sinful men and women for himself. He completely transforms us, changes us from within. We can't do this. 
That's the promise. Now hear the fulfilment. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then hear the promise of verse 27. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Not just a new heart, but the spirit of God living in us to enable us to live a completely different life. That's the promise. Now hear the fulfilment. You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. Because God is perfect and because he is holy, that is what he will do. That is what he is about in his world. And when he does that, and when his people live differently, do you see how it glorifies his name? Because the nations around then don't mock him. They look at his people and they say, wow, what a God to make a people like that. That is why it's such a disgrace when those who bear his name do not live holy lives. Here's why it's such an embarrassment when the organised church that bears the name of Christ lives contrary to his word. It profanes his holy name. And more positively, these are the marks of the real church. Oh, loads of people can call themselves the church of Jesus Christ. Here's the marks of the real church a people gathered to Jesus, cleansed by his death, given a new heart and the Holy Spirit living in them, living to please him according to his word. That is the mark of the real church. A people with no desire anymore, no desire anymore to live any other way than the Lord's Lord's way because otherwise they know the Lord's name will be profaned. See verse 31. See, when he's done this, then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. See, Christians, genuine, born-again Christians who are baptised by the Spirit of God, loathe sin because we see what it does. We see how it disrespects the name of God how it dirties the name of the God who has cleansed us, how it dishonours the name of the God who sent his son to die for us. Real, genuine Christians loathe sin and live differently. And when we live as we should, when we, the people of God, are transformed, when the whole church community lives changed lives, then do you know what happens? Look at the end of verse 38. Then says God, Unbelievers will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray.